Welcome to Cultural Controversy with Shannon Fisher, where we tackle everything from the fabulous to the forbidden. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cultural Controversy. This is your host, Shannon Fisher, and we've got a really interesting topic, a really important topic. You know, on the show, we we talk about things that people don't normally talk about and something that is often quite hush-hush in society is suicide. My guest today is Clancy Martin, and he has written a book entitled How Not to Kill Yourself, The Portrait of a Suicidal Mind. He has survived more than 10 suicide attempts, and he's an acclaimed author. Clancy, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Shannon. Your book was absolutely fascinating. And, And in the preface, you say that the reason you wrote it was to sincerely and accurately convey what it is like to want to kill yourself, sometimes on a daily basis, yet to go on living and to show good reasons for doing so. Why was that important to you? Well, there are so many people I've come to learn over the past several years since I've been writing about suicide who live with um, constant suicidal daily ideation, people like me. And we, um, it has been so thoroughly stigmatized that people are afraid to talk about it. And um, this is a really problematic thing because the best medicine we know of for dealing with suicidal ideation is talking about it. So I thought it was really important that um, we try to encourage people to to talk to each other and to recognize that um, this is nothing to be ashamed of. This is uh, like any other um, problem. mental or even physical problem that a person is dealing with. It's a health problem. Absolutely. And and one, what, one point that you drive home throughout the book is talking about it and how uh, by, by kind of bringing those thoughts to light, that those are the best chances people have of actually not going through, following through with suicidal ideation. Um, so how would you recommend someone who is having suicidal ideation, how, how would they bring that up to somebody to start that communication? What a wonderful question. Thank you for asking that. Yes, the, the best thing to do, you know, is very often if you're anything like me, you're, you're maybe not wanting to text a person and saying, to say as direct, something as direct as, you know, I'm thinking of harming myself as the common euphemism. Um, but or certainly, you know, not I'm feeling suicidal right now, even if you're in, um, you know, even if you're right on the edge of making an attempt. So uh, what you can do is just text a friend or email a friend or um, call uh, anyone really and just say, oh, I'm having a bad day. Something as simple as that, you know, or can you text me back? I'm having a really lousy day. And um, if some, if you don't get a reply from the first person you text, text somebody else. You know, the thing to recognize is that um, if you're dealing with suicidal ideation, you probably have been dealing with this for a long time, and you've managed to get from day to day. And it's, you're not always going to be feeling this way. Some days are definitely going to be much better than others. So when you're really down, you just have to 
buy yourself some time, loosen up the pressure a little bit. And one of the best ways of doing that is talking to somebody. Sure, sure. And you said and the that people who love you will surprise you, you know. Absolutely. It really it really is amazing when people do show up for you in any area of life. It it it, it makes you feel wonderful, but when you're in a when you're in a crisis, um it's it's that much more important. And you say that in some ways the desire to kill yourself is an expression of self-cherishing because you do love yourself and you're obviously in pain and you want that pain to cease. Um, and, and, and you talk about ways that you have found to cease that pain. So tell me a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if we look at our, the many different ways we use to try to escape ourselves, then suddenly we realize, gosh, I'm doing this in all these different ways. You know, some people I used to, um, I have what we now call alcohol use disorder, but what we used to call uh, being an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic in recovery. And alcohol for me was one way of escaping myself. But there are much more subtle ways, you know, whether it's shopping on the internet or scrolling through your Instagram or um, the men, myriad different ways we have of trying to escape from the kind of ordinary just pain of being human it's really hard to be a human sure. being you know it's yes. your, and and um when you're at your lowest that's when you're really acutely aware of how incredibly difficult this struggle is and it's helpful to remember that that's what you're doing is you're trying to escape this pain and what i have found in my experience is that we can take a slightly different attitude towards our pain and it's it's sort of surprising sometimes if rather than trying to suppress the pain or run away from the pain or escape the pain you kind of turn toward the pain and this is true also extensively documented in the literature on physical pain not just on mental pain sure. um, if you turn toward it and try to Try to actually embrace the pain, hold it, hold it like a, you know, treat it like it's a little baby that needs your care. Uh, it gets a bit easier. And this is what I often recommend to people who come to me and say that, you know, they're going through a depressed episode or an anxious episode or they're feeling suicidal. I try to encourage them to, rather than running away from it, um, to, to consider the possibility of maybe trying to hold it, care for it, um, and not flee from it, not distract themselves. Now, if you're right on the brink of making an attempt, you might not be ready for that. What you might need to just do is talk somebody, which will talk to somebody which will ease the pressure, or go for a walk, or do a little exercise, do something to distract yourself first. Because um, sometimes you just need a little room to breathe. Sure. And that, that goes to uh, another point that you that you bring up is that that it's important to build in kind of safety mechanisms for yourself once you're aware that you're having recurring suicidal ideation that that you need to know that this is what happens and these are your triggers and these are the safeguards that you can build into your life to prevent yourself from acting in a a moment of intensity so what what are some of the safeguards that you recommend Oh, yeah, this is so important. Um, 
they call these wellness reaction plans or wrap plans. And you can, um, they're helpful for people who suffer from suicidal ideation. They're also very helpful for people who suffer from, you know, acute depression or anxiety. You, the, the, the key is, I think, to make the change from thinking that um, there's something wrong with you to recognizing that you have this um, health issue that you're dealing with and that you're now you're going to sort of take responsibility for. You're going to look at yourself and say, okay, yeah, I can see that I have these triggers. I can see that um, I have patterns that lead me to these places. And then you can start to ask yourself, well, what are the ways that have been successful for me in the past of breaking those patterns so that I don't wind up in a really bad place. And for me, for example, they are, they're very simple things. Like I say, taking a walk. If um, the exercise routine that I'm on, see, as has happened to me, seems to be making my um, suicidal thinking worse, well, then changing that exercise plan. Um, of course, as we've been saying, sometimes just calling a friend, talking to a friend. Also for me, when I've been at my most depressed and often my most suicidal, sometimes just writing a little about exactly how it is I'm feeling, even if I can't bear to open my computer into the notes on my phone, for example. Um, just putting it down somewhere helps me to manage it. I have a, a friend named Desiree L. Stage, who's a, one of the leading suicidologists in the country. And Desiree says that what worked for her was going to get a Frappuccino. And she also made a list of her favorite movies. And this was when she, excuse me, getting to a dark spot, she would watch one of these movies or she'd go and get herself a Frappuccino. And yes, everybody who struggles with this kind of thing should have a plan like that in place. Mm -hmm. And if you have someone in your life who you are worried about or struggle, who is struggling, particularly, say, an adolescent who doesn't have these resources and suicide rates and suicide attempts are skyrocketing among our teens in America, this country, in this country right now. It's a, it's a real epidemic. You can help that person to say, hey, let's, you know, let's think of plan, a, a plan of how you can deal with this when you're really starting to panic so that you don't go into this fight or flight mode, which is so characteristic of a suicide attempt. Absolutely. And, and you talk about with youth that a lot of people, when they're just starting to become aware of suicidal ideation, a lot of times they don't really even know whether or not they want to actually die and, and that they take kind of varying degrees of action, which uh, a lot of times will will end up in, you know, they're, they're OK and they make it. And a lot of times will make it and they make an irreversible decision that in the moment between making that decision and dying that they regret. So for yeah. for young people who really, like you said, have not developed the, the self-care tools and the self-awareness to understand what their triggers are um, specifically for youth, if they're having these feelings, what should they do? Thank you for asking that. Well, there one thing that um, there is a an online resource that I like to direct um, my students to and um, younger people who come to me with um, these struggles called LiveThroughThis.org, and it's a wonder. It's just a bunch of people telling their stories about how they got into a suicidal place and how they managed. Some of them made an attempt. Um, 
I, as some of them just come very, very close to making an attempt, but how they managed to get through that time. And I, and it's really a wonderful resource. Um, I think that happily this generation seems to be at least among my own students. And I have an 18 year old and a 16 year old daughter. Um, they seem to be much more open to talking about their mental health and ways of trying to manage their mental health than we were in my generation, for example, um, when, yeah. So, um, I think what, what I tell people to do when they come to me is say, okay, well, let's, let's talk about as concretely as we can, what sort of situations provoke these feelings in you and what the feelings are. And let's, you know, just tell me everything that you can tell me. And then let's start to think of, of, um, what possible alternatives are. Um, but, the people I'm in some ways even more concerned about are the loved ones they have around them. They know that something isn't quite right, but they're afraid to broach the topic, especially they're afraid to plant the seed of suicidal thinking by talking about it. And this is an, an old and very um, popular but confused way of thinking. We, when we talk about suicide, we do not plant a seed. You know, if you're worried about your 14-year-old or 15-year-old or 12-year-old, and you say, hey, um, there's something I want to talk to you about, um, and uh, it's, you know, mental health and suicide and uh, all this stuff around it. Sure. First of all, you, you're going to be doing them and yourself a huge favor, and the, all you need to do is kind of ask questions until they're willing to open up about how they're really feeling, and then you you are in a position to to help them create a plan. Absolutely. And so, and I, I did find it really interesting because I didn't know that addressing the topic of suicide head on is one of the best ways to prevent suicide because it's becoming something that is in the forefront of someone's mind as opposed to these intrusive thoughts that are happening that are private. And, and I think you said that, that sometimes a little bit romantic. That's exactly right. I mean, Part of the problem with the stigmatization of suicide is that when something becomes secret taboo, it adds this weird kind of allure and glamour to it. And so when we just address it head on and say, hey, you know what, 10% of the world population, according to the WHO, suffers from chronic suicidal ideation. And that just means one in 10 people are thinking about suicide all the time. And probably everyone that you could Perhaps if you're the person initiating this conversation, if, if you have had at some time in your life had a thought like, wouldn't it be easier just to be dead? You can say, and I've had these thoughts too. You know, it's a little bit like having the sex talk in a way. You um, now it could be that your teenager uh, has no problems at all. And they're like, no, 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 you don't have to worry about that. Yeah, I do. I am glad you brought it up, dad. But no, but. but here are here is the problem I am dealing with, you know, and regardless of whether or not they're suffering from suicidal ideation, you're probably going to make some good progress in uh, talking about, you know, their emotional and mental well-being. Sure. Forging forging close relationships with your loved one, because teenagers can be especially distant. So it is it is so important to have open communication with your teenagers because they do tend to uh, to not want to spend time with their parents and not really open up to their parents. And you talk. about Yeah, it can be hard to get them to do that. 
definitely. And you talk about another vulnerable demographic, which was surprising to me. You said that men over 65 are the most likely demographic to uh, to kill themselves. So tell me a little bit about why that is. Yeah. Um, as men get into their 50s here in America, the uh, although right now the um, Reports of suicidal ideation, of suicide attempts, and of death by suicide are all skyrocketing, particularly among minority populations. So we, we really have to spend more attention on those populations. Still, the people most likely to die by suicide are people like me, white males um, who are getting into their 50s and 60s. I'm 55 years old, will be 56 soon. And... One of the reasons that these, uh, this particular population tends to die by suicide is that they are also the, uh, one of the largely gun-owning populations in our country. So if you are, like me, a um, 55-year-old white male, let's say, um, and you do have a gun in your house and you sometimes struggle with depression or anxiety, I just beg you, get rid of that gun. Yeah. You might think, no, I'm never going to turn the, the gun on myself. But, you know, we just are our brains are full of nasty surprises. And if you've made it to the age of 55 like me, you know that, that there's a, your brain can pull all kinds of nasty tricks on you. So just get right. rid of the gun. That, and if we could if we could make that simple change, we would already save so many lives in that demographic. Definitely. The other reason that um, that they, these or the highest risk population is they seem to be um, have fewer and fewer social connections as they get older. This particular demographic, it's it's not true of um, all demographics as they age, but it is true of white males. And so, because this demographic has trouble um, making strong social connections. If you know someone in this demographic, whether it's a dad or an uncle or a grandfather, you know, you might just think, you might think, oh, um, he's a rock. He's the last person I have to worry about. And he, probably he really wants you to believe that. Um, but it doesn't follow from that, that it's true. So I have a whole list of friends who I, who many of whom have checked in with me at one point or another and said, you know, I'm feeling suicidal. I read something that you wrote. I didn't know you were feeling, you felt this way too. I'm so glad I was Googling how to kill myself and I decided not to. And all of these guys, um, you know, I just check in with them. Uh, I try to make sure I check in with them at least once a week. And if I know somebody's in a really rough spot more than once a week, and all you have to do is send a text or an email and say, Hey, I'm just checking in. I mean, it, does, it doesn't have to be more than a sentence. And we know statistically that um, those even those occasional check-ins um, have a profound impact on reducing the likelihood of someone actually making an attempt um, so it's a it's an incredibly powerful resource that that we have an ability that we have yes. to, to save the lives of the this, this at-risk population that is a really, really good reminder. It takes just a second to send a text to somebody and it could make all the difference in the world. Now you talk about one of your earliest memories being wanting to end your own life. And um, and you, you talk about how 
it becomes a little bit of an addiction to to think about suicide um, and that it's been you know, ever present in your life throughout your entire life and uh, it, it was intertwined with your alcohol use. So tell me a little bit about how suicidal ideation and addictive thinking are related. Um, yeah, another wonderful question. Thank you. As I have spent more and more time thinking about my own experience of suicidal ideation and my addictive thinking, and then reading and researching and talking to so many different people who suffer from the same problem, I have found that the patterns of thinking that go with um, an addiction like my addiction to alcohol seem to be uh, remarkably similar and maybe even identical to the kind of thinking that I get into when I am um, thinking about taking my own life, thinking about killing myself. And it, I think it is this um, habit that one has of supposing that there is this kind of quick fix in a way. You know, you, um, you have, you, you're, you're experiencing pain of one kind or another, mental pain, and you need this quick fix. And when it comes to alcohol, in my case, you know, the quick fix worked for a long time. I was really stressed out or anxious or depressed, and I'd have a few drinks, and it would make it go away, you know, and eventually that, that quick fix didn't work anymore. But, um, and when I stopped drinking, it took a long time um, before I started to realize that, oh no, actually taking a drink is a bad thing for me rather than a good thing for me. But when you, if you have suicidal thinking, and, you know, I've talked to many people who, like me, have suicidal thinking among their earliest memories, Somehow or other, what's gotten into your head, and we don't know quite how, is the idea that suicide is a good quick fix, that all of your problems can be solved with this, this single act. And then you start, you know, getting into the habit of thinking, well, yeah, okay, I've got, I've got all these problems, but I have this quick fix available to me. And then you're like, no, but... I don't know that, that quick fix. I don't know if I want to do it. I don't know, you know, all the many reasons that happily people can bring to themselves for not yeah. making an attempt. But it's staying in your head there, like thinking that taking a drink is a good idea. Okay, taking my life, killing myself could be a good idea. And it just pops up and pops up and pops up again. And it's not until you identify the fact that you have this thought and are willing to start to accept the the truth that this is actually a not a good idea that this is a bad idea that this is not a, a quick fix to your problem but the that the habit of thinking can start to change for me it's been you know years of working on trying to change that thinking and uh, honestly writing this book helped me enormously with changing that pattern of thinking it's been I feel like it is changing. I've gone several months now without thinking that suicide looked attractive. I still have, you know, thoughts of suicide popping into my head all the time, but it, right. but now they pop in and I'm like, oh no, that's a bad idea. And so I don't cling to it in the same way. You know, I can, I can recognize it. I can acknowledge it. I can say, Hey, there you are again, that bad idea of, of killing myself. And then I can kind of 
then it fades a lot more quickly and it doesn't have any teeth. It doesn't have any pull. And right. if you have ever been addicted to anything, I think um, you'll know what I'm talking about, where you, that when the thought pops into your head and it has this weird kind of pull on you, even though you know it's a bad idea, at one level, you're like, oh, I want to smoke a cigarette. I know that's a bad idea. I, you know, it was such hard work to just quit smoking, you think to yourself, but it still has this strange pull. Um, that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the similarities between the, the two ways of thinking. Absolutely. And you, you make that very clear in the book. And this, uh, what I liked so much about this book is that you talk very, very plainly and clearly about suicide, suicidal ideation, the, the way that people come to that thought. Uh, but the entire tone of the book is don't do it. It's not a good idea. And and every time you, you you tell a story, you say, but this is how you can counteract that particular action, that particular thought. And you have a ton of resources uh, in the book for anyone who might be seeking help with suicidal ideation or with suicidal ideation of a loved one or having lost a loved one. So before we go, tell me a little bit about if someone is listening to this because they are trying to figure out what happens when their loved one who has now departed killed themselves and they're they're struggling with guilt, they're struggling with trying to make sense of it all, what would you say to those people? Oh, thank you so much for asking that question. I really want to talk to those people because um, I do have a lot of uh, friends who've lost a loved one to suicide, including you know, people who I was trying to help. Um, and what I want to say to that person is who lost a loved one to suicide is, look, there was nothing you did wrong. Don't think, oh, if I only had done this or I had done that. Recognize that this person who you loved so much was fighting a battle and they were fighting a battle for you, probably, you were one of the reasons they were, they had the strength to fight and they were fighting and fighting. And then at a certain point, you know, they just ran out of energy. They couldn't fight anymore. And, and they made the wrong decision, you know, um, yeah. but it wasn't because you did something wrong. It was that they were engaged in this terrible struggle to go on living. And then some, they just ran out of juice and that's, that's what happens in the vast majority of cases. There's, there's no blame. There's the fact that this person had a, a very common mental health problem and it ended terribly. And all we can do is, as a society, recognize that this problem is getting worse. And especially among um, adolescents right now, the problem is skyrocketing and it's even prepubescence. And it's also skyrocketing in minority populations. And so what we can do if we've lost a loved one to suicide is recognize, look, there's no shame in this. There's no stigma in this. And I now have this opportunity to help other people. And how can I help other people? By talking about the death of the person that I loved by suicide and letting people know that this is common and, and this can be happening right under your nose and you're totally unaware of it. That, that this person that you love is already, you know, surfing the web, looking for ways of doing this as painlessly as possible. Another thing I want to quickly add is, you know, 
any cry for help, anytime someone reaches out and says, you know, I'm thinking of hurting myself, anything like that, we have to take absolutely seriously, you know, and particularly um, if somebody makes an attempt, it doesn't matter if they took 10 Tylenol on an empty stomach and just wound up in the hospital. That is a serious attempt and is unfortunately the best indicator of a subsequent death by suicide. Sure. I, that is a very good point to drive home, that an attempt at suicide is the best indicator of future successful suicide. Yeah, and that, that is exactly. It, it's not just a cry for help. It's not a cry for attention. It's not someone being dramatic. It's someone in pain suffering with this ideation, which, as you said, is extremely common. And the the societal antidote to that is to bring it into light and talk about it and address it as a health condition. And, and I think that your your writing this book is is definitely contributing to to helping that. So Clancy Martin, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much, Shannon. It's an honor to be here. And um, thank you for the wonderful work that you're doing. And, um, you know, I, I hope that people will hear this. And if you're and if you're struggling, reach out to someone. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Clancy Martin, for Cultural Controversy. This is Shannon Fisher. See you next time.